0: Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now, stay tuned for your 3CR podcast.
1: You are listening to Radical Philosophy on Radio 3CR. This is Carol Adams, author of *The Sexual Politics of*. Peace.
0: Like some food for thought, tune in to Radical Philosophy with discussions on freedom, happiness, knowledge, evil, and rational argument, with words from Midgley, Caputi, Adams, Stewart, Wolf, and Hagen Gruber. Let's get radical about philosophy. <laughs>
1: My name is Bronwyn Winter and you're listening to Radical Philosophy on 3CR, which is 8.55 on your AM dial.
0: Anger makes us all stupid, Joanna Spira. Heidi, 1915. Welcome to Radical Philosophy. I'm your host, Beth Matthews. Today I'm speaking with Dr Jocelyn Scott about violence in the family. This is part two of a two-part interview. Do you think there's any steps that could be taken to end violence in the family?
1: I think, well, for a start, I think the government should stop closing down the refuges that they have and handing them over to commercial operations or religious operations that really ought not to be involved in running refuges that are supposed to be ensuring that women have proper recognition of their rights because we know that... If a refuge is, say, being run by a commercial operation or by a religious authority, then there are some women who simply will not go because they don't want to have anything to do with a religious body. And they're entitled to say, I have a right to services that are being properly provided with government funding and by people who really understand what criminal assault at home and other forms of domestic violence are and who can actually give me support that is the support that I and my children need. And in my book, Even in the Best of Homes, what I found, the first half was the forms of violence that I mentioned and the second part was looking at what resources there were available and the problem is that there were very few, because women would go to a religious person who would say, well, his have your bed lie on it, or to a psychologist who went in to, look, really, it's your conduct. Some of this has changed, but really and truly the problem is still entrenched within the way that society thinks about this and thinks about women's rights and women's role. And then they go to their original family, and what they would find is that even though their family loved them and wanted to support them, they might have the attitude, look, you made your bedroom lie in it. They didn't necessarily understand that the level of violence was what it was. They had reconfigured the family home and the woman's bedroom had been taken over by one of the other children or by somebody for a study or the sewing room. So they were forced into a position where they had to go back home. And the only, and then the police too were not much help. I mean, in New South Wales in particular, around the 80s, there was a head of the police who did take this issue quite seriously. And people within the police knew that if they were going to advance their way up the ladder, then they had to pay attention to this issue and take it seriously. And there were efforts made to train police, but of course, it's endless training that you've got to do and it's really reconfiguring people's heads, how they think about these issues and how they respond and act in these sorts of circumstances. So what I found was that the only real place of support and proper support in terms of not just pat on the head or deary-deary, you know, you need support, it was real concrete support information about income, information about relations with social security, information about where children could find supports and so on. It was the women's refuges, and it was the feminist run women's refuges. One had been set up originally, Elsie, by Anne Summers and her bunch, and there was one that was set up in Fremantle in Australia very early, around the same time, And then there's Marian Hosking, who's up in the Taree area. She was very centrally involved in this, and it was those refuges that really were saving women. And I don't mean saving women, as I said, in terms of a pat on the head and a you know cool hand on a fevered brow. It was concrete information. It was concrete support, and they would go the women's refuge workers with a woman to Social Security, she would fill out the forms, but they'd be there to assist and to support. And so it was really a method of en- enabling women to engage in self-help with a recognition that they actually needed help and support in order to enable them to do that. And I think that we really need to return to the idea that women's refuges have to be... Uh, funded and supported properly but I would also say that that is certainly not enough because in the end why should the woman leave the home when she's the one who's been beaten up we need to have um, what I've advocated in in my book even in the best of homes is that we need troubleshooting groups that the woman stays in the home and the man has to remove himself because he's the one that's the problem and then we'd have a group of women who would come in and ensure that she the woman who was the subject of this criminal assault at home was properly supported in her own home because the difficulty is if you move to a refuge with the children then the children are moved out of their school and they get grumpy and they're saying even though they know it's been horrible with the father being violent they want to be back with their school friends they want to be with their teacher that they know they want to be in their familiar surroundings and that's what every human being wants And therefore, we need to think about ways that we can enable the women who are being brutalised in this way to actually remain in their own homes with proper support. Now, there'll be people out there, of course, saying, well, some men are treated in a violent way. In my own book, what I found is that the main problem is that women are being beaten up. And I'm sorry that I have to say it, but the people who are beating them up are in the main men. We do find that there are same sex relationships that can be violent. That's true too. And there are instances where women can actually hit their husbands. But what I found was that the dynamic is completely different. The woman is genuinely beaten up or abused or assaulted in the bedroom. And if it's a man who's being assaulted, it's generally in the kitchen or in the laundry. And what I found was that all my women who engaged in this, and it was very, very few proportionately, were in full-time paid employment apart from one who was a full-time student. And they were busy doing their full-time employment, doing their full-time study and coming home. And then they were busy cooking the dinner and doing the washing and doing all the domestic things. And what would happen is that the husband would be sitting at the table uh, criticising and saying, oh, this wasn't good enough and I need this and I need something else. And the poor woman was going fair. Now, of course, there's no excuse that she then turned around and hit the husband. That is not an excuse and it's not excusable. But that's a very, very different dynamic from where the woman is in the bedroom and the husband is demanding that she come across in a sexual sense, and if she won't, she gets beaten up. Or another situation is where the husband wants to borrow money, and she's saying, oh, look, I don't really know if I want to sign this document. Too bad, a fist comes up under her nose, and she has to sign the document. Now, those sorts of circumstances are utterly different, in my opinion, but I hasten to say that the violence... Should not be there and the violence should not be allowed to happen but if we did undo this social notion that husbands actually do have some form of ownership over their wives and that the wives are there to be dictated to by the husbands and to do what the husband wants that's the only way that we'll actually undo the violence that's inflicted on women which is the main violence or on children, which is also pretty substantial, or the violence that might be done against the very few, proportionately, men who are subjected to violence, which I emphasise is unacceptable too.
0: Are there times when the police just don't want to get involved in family matters?
1: Well, that has been an existing problem for eons, really, that the police say it's a domestic and we can't get involved, it's a private matter. Now, to a certain extent, that has changed and it is recognised that criminal assault at home should be taken seriously and the police have a role to play. But whether this is a consistent response or not, of course, is another question. Some police, I should hasten to say, are extremely good and they do see that what they've got to do is take action and treat the crime as they would treat any other crime. But there are still difficulties in this area and it is really a question of education and it's a question of reorientating all of our brains so that we no longer do think that women are property, that children are property and that they belong to somebody who is the head of the household. Uh, I mean, and I in, in my book, there was one woman who said, oh, look, I don't understand why there's criticism and police because they were very good to me. But you see, what very good was in her terms, she did manage to call them and they came round. and what they said to her is look this is not a good situation for you to be living in together with your child and you really should go back to the state from whence you came. But she was living in Sydney or something and she'd come up from Melbourne and the husband had followed her up and they were living together and the husband was the environment but if you think about it, that really isn't very helpful. Because, of course, we can all say, we'll go back to the state from whence you came. Well, then the problem goes back to the state from whence you came. And if this man was criminally assaulting the woman and the the child was at risk, well, then, I mean, even whether the child was at risk or not, of course, is, is not a principal factor, but it could be an additional factor. Well, then they should have taken action in terms of the husband. But, you see, women's expectations were so low, at least hers were, that she thought, that the police had acted in a very responsible and reasonable manner in that circumstance, when in fact what we can see is, well, no, they hadn't.
0: You're listening to Radical Philosophy on Radio 3CR, 8.55 on your AM dial, and I'm speaking to Dr Jocelyn Scott about violence in the family. This is part two of a two-part interview. I suppose the the police really need specialised training in this area, don't they?
1: Absolutely, the police need training. And sometimes people say, well, what we need is special rape squads and special uh, criminal assault at home squads and so on. Look, in the end, if a woman's going to be raped, whether it's in the home or out there on the street, or she's going to be beaten up, whether it's by an ex-boyfriend or a current boyfriend or a husband or an ex-husband... The point about it is that I'm afraid that the Specialised Rape Squad or the Specialised Criminal Assault at Home Squad is not going to be there. They'll be there sometimes, but they're not necessarily going to be up in you know, in, in the outer regions in the country. They might be in Wollongong, but they're not going to be in Taree, or they might be in Taree, but they're not going to be in, I don't know, somewhere else. And therefore, we need training for all police all police have that compulsory training in these areas because they're huge. I mean, the amount of violence that goes on, and even if we just want to look at the economic impact, that's enormous too because people have time off from work, they, they're killed, their children are left. There are all these implications that come from it and we really need to take strong positive action. But it's not enough just to also identify the police because the magistrates are an issue as well. And the magistrates need to be properly trained in this area. And I can remember doing one case where my client was being pursued by an ex-partner and he was sending roses and so on. And the magistrate said, oh, well, isn't she lucky to be getting roses from this man? But what she knew and what we knew was that this was just a part of his dynamic. He would beat her up and then say, Oh sorry, 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 and bring these roses and so it was really a part of the problem, the roses. But all the magistrates saw was, Well, it's lovely to get roses and isn't this man wonderful for actually delivering roses or endeavouring to do so and what's wrong with his wife or ex wife, they should get back together. And you did often find some magistrates saying that, that the solution would be for the parties to get back together again. Well, that's not the solution and the magistrates need the training as well. And so do the judges higher up the the, the levels, the different levels, because sometimes in fact they so rarely come into contact with cases of this nature that when cases of where a woman has killed uh, the husband because of his violence and so on, then they're absolutely unattuned to what the realities are they would of course say oh yes we know all about it but they actually don't and they need to be trained as well so it's everybody within society that needs having it brought home to them what the realities of these forms of violence are and that society really in order to end it has to be reconfigured in Ways that mean that every single human being just changes their position and actually sees the reality in front of their eyes rather than seeing, you know, a romantic love scene when they see a man giving roses to his wife or ex-wife.
0: And there's also, I mean, when you speak about violence, it's not just physical violence, is it? It's, you know, constant put-downs or, you know, uh, preventing you know, a partner from leaving the home or just making them feel really bad about themselves as well, isn't it?
1: Well, yes, I mean, there are a whole lot of issues here that we need to pay attention to. And, I mean, because in in that book, Even in the Best of Homes, when I did a follow-up nearly 10 years later, I found that really very little, if anything, had changed terribly much, even though, as I said, effort had gone in with the New South Wales Police Force to actually change the way that police conducted themselves. But it's so easy to fall back on what people know or the assumptions that people make, and that's one of the real problems in this area.
0: You just mentioned before that not a lot has changed, but do you do you think that court's treatment of women has improved at all?
1: I think that there has been some improvement, that's no doubt, but one can't say all is dark. And the family court has made some efforts in terms of trying to come to grips with the fact that if a woman says that the child has been sexually abused or that she fears the child having been sexually abused, it's just not an absolute liar, which unfortunately was really poor for the course in the past. But there still can be that sort of an attitude. And it's difficult because when you're um, representing in this sort of an area, it's hard to work out what the best approach is because women are afraid to raise problems of sexual abuse of the children for fear that it will go against them, and they look as if they're, they're simply making this up in order to get custody of the children or residency of the children. So there's an amalgam of difficult issues still arising, both in the civil jurisdiction, the family court, and in the criminal jurisdiction. And on the afraid that I don't adhere to the notion that intervention orders, as they're called in some states, are really the answer. This is where the man beats up the woman and so then she can go and get an order that says that he shouldn't do it again. Now, the reality there is that he should actually be being arrested for the original crime that he's committed. But what happens is, and what that dynamic results in, is that she suffers a criminal act, she goes and gets this order that he shouldn't do a criminal act again. And if he does, and if action is taken on the order, then it's not actually action uh, that recognises that she has rights and that she has been abused and assaulted again. It's an action that recognises that the court is in contempt because the order has been breached and that therefore is a contempt of court. So it's really the wrong ideology that we're actually projecting in those orders. And many women will say that it's not worth the paper it's written on. And unfortunately, and really, really sadly, all over the world, we hear of cases where women have had orders taken out against violent men, whether they're a husband, an ex-husband or some stalker, and they end up dead and the order has not helped them one iota. And then you find the police saying, oh, well, you know, didn't really listen properly and so on. And But I do hasten to say again, that the difficulty for the police is too, we don't let them off the hook, but it also has to be recognised that if they do take action, and if then when the case gets to court, the magistrate doesn't recognise the reality of the situation or the judge or whoever it comes before, then the police are disparaging as well. I've always said that what we need to do is the police need to take the action that they're bound to take, and then we need to operate on this level issue, that is, the police take action and it goes into court. Now, if it's not dealt with properly in court, that should not mean that the police say, oh, well, we'll give up, we're not going to do this again because the court's hopeless. They should keep persisting, and we then say the courts have to do the right thing and therefore we need to instead of saying oh it's all too difficult we've got to change the whole world all at once we deal with a bit of the world that comes within our purview that comes within our responsibility and that's really what we should be doing instead of thinking oh well you know I can do nothing because it's such a big worldwide problem and it's about the dynamic between women and men that's existed since time immemorial. There's no good thinking in those terms. We've got to think in, 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 in when I say incremental, I don't mean over time I mean in terms of the different levels of social responsibility and legal responsibility. That's where we have to really be focusing. Do
0: you have any future study plans?
1: Oh well I, <laughs> I'm writing. it. I did a book on the uh, Magna Carta because uh, 12 15, it was the 500 years of Magna Carta in 2015 and I did a book, Women and Magna Carta, A Treaty for Rights and Wrongs because I wanted to look at, of course Magna Carta was sealed by King John without any women present whatsoever and women are only mentioned as daughters or wives or widows apart from the daughters of the King of Scotland who were captives of King John at the time, and they're actually mentioned by name. But uh, I wanted to see whether the principles that were espoused in Magna Carta, although they only applied to the barons, really, could be used by women. And some, of course, have. Habeas corpus and so forth has been used by a woman in particular, I'm thinking of Jackson, who was kidnapped by her husband in he, 1861, and he said, oh, well, I've got a right to kidnap her and take her into my home and keep her in there because we're married. And the court said, well, actually, no, you don't. And that was really revolutionary, that case and that decision. And then I did a book that came out in 2016, and the next one was Women, Law and Culture, Because Con- Conformity, Contradiction and Conflict and that's a collection where I have women from all around the world writing about different cultural constraints that are imposed on women because I think that sometimes certain cultures are seen as constraining women and negative to women's interests when we really have to see that those constraints can apply in every single culture and the superiority that some cultures have about the notion that they're being that, you know, women are being treated in an egalitarian manner. It is not actually correct. And we need to therefore not excuse, therefore, any culture because another one's just as bad. We need to actually analyse what's going on and why within every culture there are constraints that are imposed on women that are not imposed upon men. And at the moment, I'm doing performances in plastic, women's bodies, beauty women's bodies and the law because I want to look at the way that women's bodies are being treated nowadays as simply tabula rasa to be chopped about and stitched up and Botoxed and so on and that we're really losing control in a sense over our identity through these impositions that are really turning our bodies into plastic fields of performance and so that's what I'm working on at the present time. It's another form of violence, in a sense, against women. And some people would say that women are complicit in that. Well, yes, so I'm addressing that issue
0: as well. Oh, that's, yeah, that's a very good point. Yeah, very interesting. Well, thank you very much for coming onto the program today.
1: Okay, go ahead, Beth.
0: I've been speaking to Dr Jocelyn Scutt about violence in the family well that's all we have time for today i've certainly enjoyed your company and do tune in next week also stay tuned for are you looking at me